Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. Hello and welcome back to Becoming Educated. I'm Darren Leslie and this week we're going to try something a little bit different and I'll be in conversation and taking part with Stuart Farmer and Anne Glennie. Both Stuart and Anne are former podcast guests and you can find both of their episodes with Stuart about professional learning and with Anne about how we teach reading and why every child deserves to learn to read. But this week we're going to have a discussion and conversation around what good professional learning should look like in the future. And the bulk of this podcast is specific to Scotland, but I think some of the conversations and features may be relevant to my listeners in England, Wales, Northern Ireland, Australia, Canada, the United Arab Emirates, wherever professional learning takes place with teachers. We begin by exploring the state of play currently and how we take part and engage with professional learning. We then tackle the topic of what good professional learning would look like. Then we dig a little bit deeper into our systems, beginning with initial teacher education and whether that transition from initial teacher education to the classroom is supportive enough of our teachers as they begin their career. Then we tackle the question on about subject knowledge and whether there's a big enough focus on subject knowledge. And it's interesting to hear Anne's take from the primary sector where they are they have subject knowledge on a vast variety of domains rather than the one or two domains you'd see in secondary schools. We then discuss how the system can change to accommodate this dream of professional learning where it's fit for purpose for every single teacher. Because we know oftentimes putting a hundred teachers in a hall with one presenter probably isn't the best use of time and resources. But it is a difficult thing to fit in to schools and schools calendars to be able to ensure that professional learning is fit for purpose for the individual teacher at the time and place when they need professional learning. I hope that you enjoy this conversation. I hope it stimulates some debate. And if you want to get in touch with either myself, Stuart or Anne, please do so on Twitter and keep the conversation going. But before we dive into the conversation, can I please remind you that if you would like to support the ongoing work of Becoming Educated, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash DN Leslie. And can I take this opportunity to all the listeners who have already bought me a coffee? Trust me, your input and comments are hugely invaluable for me as I continue to produce Becoming Educated. So without further ado, let's dive right into my conversation with Stuart Farmer and Anne Glennie on the future of professional learning. So welcome to Becoming Educated and today we're going to try something a little bit different and um, I've got some two excellent former 
Um, no, not former. Yes, former. So former guests on the podcast joining me together for a little professional discussion about professional learning and, and the state of play of professional learning in Scotland and possibly further afield. So joining me tonight are Anne Glenny and Stuart Farmer. So I'll let you both introduce yourself. Let's start with Anne. Can you say who you are and what you do? Thanks, Darren. Yes, um, I'm Anne Glenny. I've been working as a literacy consultant in Scotland for the last 11 years. Uh, I'm a primary teacher to trade. Um, also for the last six years, I've been working as a publisher. So I'm sort of involving my love of books, my love of reading and my love of learning uh, in both of my sort of professional activities. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. And, and Stuart, can you say a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes, thanks, Darren. Um, well, my, my trade uh, has been a secondary physics teacher. And um, after about 35 years uh, doing that job for the last uh, nearly three years now, I've been the education manager at the Institute of Physics. Um, but right the way through all of my career, both as a, a, a teacher um, and uh, especially more recently, I've been very much involved and interested in the professional learning of teachers um, through various organisations and activities and, um, you know, have conducted research and things on that as well as um, being involved in delivering it as well. Certainly, thank you. And just for the benefit of listeners who may be listening for the first time, I'm Darren Leslie. I am the Principal Teacher of Teaching and Learning at Bell Baxter High School. I'm now in my I think I'm in my 10th year of teaching now, ninth or 10th, I can't remember. And um, I'm fully engrossed in the world of, of teaching and teacher education. So I, I'm really looking forward to this discussion and, and find it so fascinating. So let's kick off. I, I'll leave it open for us all to jump in and try and lead a discussion as best I can. So we're going to talk about professional learning and try and kind of come to some sort of conclusions on the state of play and the future of professional learning. But let's start off with what is the state of play currently and how do we take part in and engage with professional learning as it is now? Well, I suppose um, a large part of my job involves delivering professional learning. So that um, pretty much the model has remained the same uh, in the period of time that I've been doing it in that in-service days tend to be the main model of transmission for professional learning. It has, of course, changed somewhat um, since um, COVID in that much of that has moved online. We're now starting to see some of that come back uh, to in-person training. In some ways, it's um, made it a bit more accessible for people. So people are no longer restricted purely to in-service days. So I'll now see lots of schools requesting after-school training, for example. So that doesn't limit people to those few days every year. It means they can request training when they need it. In terms of, I think, professional learning in, in Scotland at the moment, uh, I think despite what's said about its importance, I think um, it's actually a fairly low priority for lots of people. Um, I think when you know systems are under pressure and stress, as we've obviously had in the last couple of years, I think it's true values um, you know, come out. And while obviously I think lots of teachers have been prioritising um, education for the kids, uh, understandably, 
I think um, the importance of professional learning has kind of gone by the by the by in many respects, which I think shows that there is a, a gap between sort of rhetoric and reality in many ways. Um, and I think, as Anne's said, you know, she's described a little bit about the, the sort of system in Scotland. I think from a policy perspective, I think we've actually got um, a really good basic minimum entitlement built into the system because we've got the in-service days, the collegiate time in schools, uh, we've got the 35 hours of more personal, professional uh, learning time, you know, built into contracts. Um, but I think that how that time is actually used um, doesn't always lead to, you know, effective professional learning. Um, I think as well from a policy perspective, we've got the GTCS standards that um, emphasize collaboration and inquiry-based approaches and research-based approaches and teachers supporting each other, which you know, I think is all you know, really good, laudable stuff. Um, I think we've also got the national model of professional learning, although I do wonder how many Scottish teachers actually have ever heard of it. Um, um, and the model, like so many other documents in Scottish education, is not well referenced. Um, but I've spent a lot of time in recent years reading a lot of the literature around professional learning, and I can see that it draws on good sources. Um, but you wouldn't tell that by looking at the, the national model for professional learning. Um, and it comes across a bit as, you know, this, this is just what you should do, which I, I don't think is, um, you know, the best way to approach the professional learning of any, any teacher. So, you know, I think the basic policy elements in Scotland are actually quite good, but the, the way in which they're used um, isn't so good. Um, I think there is good professional learning out there, but it's, you've kind of, um, there's an element of luck involved. You know, you've got to be in the right place at the right time. Um, or you've got to have a sufficient agency yourself to go out and seek it out and look for it. Um, and, um, you know, sort of different teachers need different professional learning at different points in their career. Um, and, you know, often as, as you know, Anne's touched on uh, in service days and things like that, you know, it's a one size fits all, um, um, you know, sticking a hundred people in an assembly hall it's not going to meet the needs of many of the individuals in the in the assembly hall if 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 any you know it's obviously a cheap way of delivering professional learning staff but it's definitely not a cost effective way um you know i think it just misses the mark um and um you know therefore i think that um often the use of that time and the sort of collegiate time through learning communities and networks are poorly facilitated you know, often I've got agendas handed down to them and, you know, there just isn't um, the support there to make sure that really good use is made of them. So uh, I think in many ways that's almost, um, you know, that and the accountability agenda has really had a sort of deprofessionalizing impact on lots of teachers and how the time's used, which, you know, I think we, we could be doing a lot better. No, I would certainly agree with a lot of what you said there when you mentioned about being a, a fairly low priority for people. And that's not often their fault um, because of the, the workload, the, the accountability measures, the data tracking that we end up doing. We have Scottish teachers have the highest contact time in the developed world. So we are with young people a lot, which obviously gives us less time for planning and preparation, never mind um, 
professional learning. And I think yeah. what you mentioned there, there's a gap between the rhetoric and the reality. I find that quite often when I when I'm I spend a lot of time in my podcast speaking to professionals from other areas, and they'll off off um, off air they'll make comment about how they perceive things in Scotland to be, and I'll be like, well, I'm not quite sure about that. Although it, it is what it says on the on the in the doc policy documents and the the you know rhetoric that comes out about, especially around about. I mean, if if you from looking from afar. In some areas, you would think that almost all teachers were involved in some sort of professional inquiry in Scotland, but you would probably, if you surveyed them, there wouldn't be that many. And and it's interesting, this one-size-fits-all model, because I spoke about that recently with Mark and Zoe Enser for the podcast, where they spoke about the exact same thing you mentioned. You've got 80 teachers in a hall all getting the same message around feedback but there is a varying degree of novice to expert teachers, if we want to use that terminology in there, and they all need different things at different points in their career. So how do we get that to, how how do we narrow that down and and really support people with professional learning? It's interesting, Anne, your comment about it being moved online. I mean, have you seen a shift with delivering things to staff after a school after a full working day is that still as meaningful as it is on an inset day when staff are probably a little bit more relaxed and a bit more receptive i think it's definitely harder you know um to it's a big ask of staff to do training end on to the school day um when you when you've been teaching all day but i have to say you know um teachers are keen they're up for it they, they want information teachers are working so hard they, they do want to do the best job um, and they want that information, you know, that's going to help them do the best they can. So, you know, online, um, I would say is n- not the best. After schools, not the best, but it's better than anything we, you know, currently have available when we don't have any more time or leeway in the system. You know, Stuart kind of touched on agency and accessibility. This, uh, you know, allows access but increasingly, you know, something that's really positive, you know, you mentioned podcast, uh, podcasts, blogs, books, that's been, you know, just part of the professional learning landscape, at least for me, you know, for the last 10 years, uh, that has definitely changed my practice. But I would say in the last couple of years, that's really starting to impact Scotland. We're seeing proper educational books by Scottish authors, educational podcasts that are relevant for Scotland, um, you know, blogs that are relevant. That that there hasn't really been that. And I feel that is really starting to come to the fore now. But you know, again, something that's really recent is newsletters that are going out from, you know, I think your school might be one of the ones Darren, that you're responsible for, you know, where they're signposting people to research, to podcasts, to blogs to papers that are relevant and important. Um, So that for me is quite exciting to see that shift. It's coming, it's happening, but it seems to be the people that are accessing that are the ones that are, you know, you've got to be a certain sort of person to go away and spend your own time, (laughs) you know, learning in that way. Certainly, and it's interesting because I remember tweeting out a while back that I read the teacher gap. And in that, they've got a wonderful paragraph and it just echoed so much with me because you mentioned, Stuart mentioned teacher agency and I I um, 
was interviewed for Teachers Talk Radio recently, and I spoke that, you know, if you met me three years ago, I hadn't, I hadn't touched a book, hadn't, I had no interest in professional learning. I was just wanting to do the best I could, the best job I could. And then I pick up a book and all of a sudden here I am. So that I think I'm a good example of that agency, um, of that wider reading, Twitter, um, blogs, books, podcasts, resulting in creating my own podcast that we're on here. So that's really interesting. So it brings us on to, to our next question that we want to explore. What then would good, high-quality professional learning look like? Well, if I can come in first on this one, and I think it, you know, in many ways, you know, I'm following on from what I've said before. Um, I, I don't think that necessarily there's an awful lot of people in the in the Scottish system at the moment really know what good professional learning looks like. It's a, it's a bit like, you know, what the two of you have just been saying, you know, that practice has developed for some um, a long way in the last few years because of the accessibility of, um, you know, Twitter. You know, I, I joined up on Twitter, Twitter nearly um, you know, 10 years ago, I think it is now. And that kind of revolutionized my access to, you know, basically a really good news feed that, you know, I had a bit of control over, uh, you know, you can choose who you follow and it really highlighted um, a lot of things that um, just wouldn't be able to get access to otherwise. And uh, as you say, the availability of books and podcasts and things has changed an awful lot. Um, but um, I still think, and it was kind of what I said about the, you know, why I touched on the in-service days and things like that earlier, you know, that... I, don't think is the experience for the majority of teachers in Scotland um, because they're you know doing a good job in their schools and unless they're you know stepping outside of that they're not really experiencing that and it means that the, the majority of their experience um, you know is what they just don't recognize you know or understand what good professional learning could be like um, and part of the answer to that of course is that you know, there isn't one silver bullet perfect type of professional learning that, you know, is the, 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 the solution to all the problems. Um, different people have got different needs, um, you know, different locations, different parts, times in their career. Um, and um, we need to get away, therefore, from the, 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 the looking for a one size fits all and the expectation that that's going to be good enough for everybody. Um, and... Um, you know, therefore, I think that the questions are uh, about what good professional learning looks like is you have to think about, you know, what the aims and purpose of the professional learning is, and then look at the features of the professional learning that's going to be most likely to, to actually meet these. And I, I think uh, I've been really, um, you know, quite excited by the recent publication uh, by the EEF um, the work that Sam Sims and Harry Fletcher Wood have led on about trying to identify the, the mechanisms of the professional learning that are really effective, the active ingredients, um, because there's been a lot of um, research in recent years trying to identify the, the types of professional learning and, and whether, for example, instructional coaching, you know, is better than um, lesson study or, you know, um, 
professional learning communities or, you know, the various main types. And, you know, they've moved away from just trying to identify the features, things like collaboration and extended time to, to look at more uh, sort of granular detail in some respect to what are the actual active ingredients. So um, I think that, you know, I would like to see us in Scotland having uh, a much better debate about um, what these key active ingredients ought to be to make sure that professional learning is actually fit for purpose for the different individuals' needs, you know, at the different times and different locations. Um, from my perspective, what would good professional learning look like? I suppose I'm very conscious these days, you know, if you're providing professional learning as I am, you have a big responsibility to ensure that what you're telling people is accurate, valid, useful, helpful. So I really feel now that, you know, a major part of that, you have to ensure that you're providing a research-based rationale for what you're telling people. And the thing is, it's increasingly difficult for teachers because anyone who will come and do training for you will say, oh, this is research-based. <laughs> but teachers also need to know that not all research is equal and they need to be able to evaluate what they're being told, what they're being fed. And, you know, it's I'm very aware that it's not always the case that the professional learning that's being carried out is based on research. People may claim it is, but it's not necessarily the case. And as teachers, we perhaps don't know enough to be able to ask the right questions or to dig a bit deeper or to go further and find out, well, is that, you know, should we take this at face value and accept what we're being told or is there more to the story? And I think that kind of mentality uh, is perhaps holding us back because we're not aware of what's under the bonnet. We're not aware of, um, you know, different theories or different research that may be behind the scenes. Um, we tend to take some of the stuff that's been rolled out, perhaps at scale, um, you know, from certain places, perhaps uh, national bodies, perhaps the curriculum itself as the kind of gold standard without asking any questions. Yeah, I think that the, you know, as I said earlier on, the standards, for example, have all of that stuff in there. And, you know, what there's obviously a desire in many quarters, which I'm very much supportive of, is, you know, to move to a, a master's level profession. Um, and I think, you know, we, we, we ought to have a teaching profession that is critical, that is able to use research, that is able to access the research, you know, because, again, that's a major problem. Um, to be able to, you know, have time to properly digest that. But I think also get the, the support, you know, that teachers need the support to do that. As, as you've already said, Darren, you've highlighted how time poor, you know, teachers are. So I think there is it is important that there is, a, you know, proper support and advice there for teachers. I, I don't think the PRD and the professional update um, processes are working well. Um, you know, the, the GTCS's own review five-year review of professional update, you know, said that it wasn't working as a, effectively as it ought for all teachers. Um, certainly in some of my own research more recently, you know, that, that would back that up, you know, and it, it's not just seen as part, you know, that process should be seen as a central part of what it means to be a teacher. 
in Scotland and not a sort of bureaucratic bolt on that you've got to, you know, tick a few boxes or to try and work out which standards match, you know, whatever, um, you know, once a year. Um, you know, we need to change the culture so that that inquiring, uh, engaged mindset is just what it means to be a teacher. Uh, so very much agree with Anne on, on that. But at the moment, the, 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 the system doesn't support teachers well to be able to do that. Mm, certainly in, in the my can I talk anecdotally in my experience of the PRD process and the professional update I've oftentimes perhaps it's my my mindset perhaps I'm the guilty party here is that I've went into PRDs and, and thought about what can I do next to climb the ladder where there's not, not really been a focus on which aspect of my teaching do I need to improve the quality of and how am I going to go about doing that you know, have a, a professional learning plan that focuses on this area of uh, learning, teaching, principles, program, toolkit, whatever you want to call it. And I'm going to act, I'm going to read this book, listen to this podcast, read this article. I'm then going to try this technique at this time with this class. And I'm going to try it for four weeks and I'm going to do this do now and I'm or this 10 question quiz and then this 10 question quiz and then this 10 question quiz to find out if the children have learned more secured more I'm going to ask this colleague to observe me before and after to see if there's any difference in my classroom culture and so on I don't think there's enough of a focus on that within our PRD and dare I say dare I say some of our standards because the standards are they're, they're very academically written um, they could be a little bit clearer on which aspects of, of, of teaching, you know, high standards of behaviour, uh, for example, or um, a clear and coherent cohesive curriculum that is then enacted through the best pedagogy. And then you can have that discussion on what is the best pedagogy, but we're not getting to that discussion because the processes perhaps don't fo allow us to focus in or zone in or really zoom in on that minutiae of, of teaching you know it goes back to a twitter poll I, I ran a couple of weeks back with a couple hundred respondents which is not a massive respondent but over 90 percent of them didn't have enough time in the working week to talk about the minutiae of teaching you know I, I was going to use this is my explanation that I've scripted I'm going to use this and this is the cold call I'm going to use this is the turn and talk this is what I'm going to turn and talk this is what I'm going to ask Anne, because in the last lesson, she was a little bit rusty, but I believe she can get there. So I'm going to target her in this lesson. We don't talk about that enough within our teaching. And I think you mentioned that, kind of alluded to that a little bit, Stuart. Yeah, I think that the actual chat between teachers about the, the you know, some people call it the craft of teaching. Um, I think, you know, there's lots of ways that you can describe it, but is that... Um, ability to chat through with a fellow professional that actually really understands the issue that you're dealing with and, that, and in many ways um, you know I, that's where I think there needs to be quite a strong subject specific element of that um, but going back to sort of an anecdote that I um, you know can tell and you know some listeners might have heard me say this before um, at various places but um, um, a number of years ago, building on um, presentations and um, information that I got from, um, I maybe 
hesitate to call them friends, but certainly, you know, good acquaintances, um, you know, elsewhere in the UK, uh, developed um, a, a workshop for physics teachers on the use of diagnostic questions in, in teaching physics. And I'd, so I'd done that with, uh, you know, IOP events and, and uh, elsewhere. And um, I helped host um, a pedigree event. at uh, That's when I worked at Robert Gordon's College in Aberdeen. And we, we had the um, uh, pedigree events there. And, and I um, decided to do a, 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 that sort of workshop on uh, diagnostic questioning at the pedigree event. But because it wasn't a, a physics or science teacher audience, I thought, well, you know, I'll need to maybe vary this a little bit to be able to use different examples. Uh, and I then tried to rework the session to make it suitable for a wide audience, you know, all teachers, primary, secondary. And I just basically couldn't do it. But I, I sort of gave up after a while because I realized that I just didn't know enough about the other subjects and how to teach the other subjects to be able to come up with examples of how to use diagnostic questions. Uh, I could do it for physics because I know what the misconceptions that kids are likely to have. I know what I'm looking for. I know then how I can use, you know, maybe two tier multiple choice questions or confidence grids or, you know, all the various different type of questions, styles and things that you could ask to try and uncover what it was the kid was just not getting. Now, I could do that because I understood my subject well enough and how to teach the subject and the common problems that kids have to be able to identify the question. So I ended up doing the session to the teachers um, that were there, you know, mixed primary, secondary audience. And I was able to go through the examples as I had done with physics teachers and explain, you know, here's a common problem that I know that kids have, you know, NS3 or whatever it was. And therefore, you know, I want to be able to ask if they're understanding that. And I went through, you know, what the question was, why it was structured in the way it was, what I was trying to tease out of it. Now, I think the session went pretty well as a result. But, um, you know, I think the teachers that were there, you know, if you were a history teacher or a music teacher or a primary teacher there, hopefully you could understand that process that I went through to then be able to, in your particular subject area, to be able to come up with your own questions for your own reasons to do that. But um, I could only really have an in-depth discussion about the type of questions, the contact, the content of the questions, whether the wording was quite right, how to improve it with another physics colleague, because I could only have that in-depth, real understanding conversation with somebody that also knows the subject, the difficulties and everything else. So I think that's a really good example of where you need to have that deep conversations with people that are sufficiently close to what you're doing uh, to be able to really take that to the next level. Now, as, as I said, you know, I think other teachers from other subjects can get something from being involved in that process, but the real deep learning and understanding has to be done with other sufficiently like-minded individuals. And uh, that's, I think, a really important part of um, you know, taking professional learning to the next step. And, you know, if teachers don't have enough time to even sit and have a decent chat around a coffee, you know, at lunchtime or, you know, whatever, that's not going to happen in schools. Certainly, and we'll come back to exactly that. And I like what you mentioned about subjects. But, Anne, what do you, can I bring you in 
in on that because you obviously deliver professional learning to to a wide array of people in both primary and secondary. So, do you think that this there's a definite need for the, for some of your examples to be more subject specific when you maybe get to secondary? Um, I delivered some secondary training recently and we had um, modern languages teachers involved with that, English teachers, support for learning teachers, and I believe there were other um, interlopers that had uh, come in as well. We had some senior management there, but the sort of resounding consensus was that, wow, this stuff is really relevant because we're all working with children every day. We all need to know more about how to support them with their reading, with their spelling when they're struggling. So I totally get, you know, I suppose it's almost like a pyramid, you know, that the more we get to the top, the narrower, you know, the funnel becomes and we need to be more subject specific, we need to be more experts. But there's absolutely a place for more general knowledge that's relevant to everybody. So, you know, before we get into some of the subject specific stuff, there are some general things that everybody needs to know about um you know totally take the point that you wouldn't want a hundred secondary teachers all teaching different subjects in the same room having the same cpd but a hundred primary teachers in the same room having the same cpd that absolutely works because as primary teachers we are all generalists um, and we would have to work out how to use uh, Stuart's diagnostic questioning across the different subjects, uh, you know, the range of 10 subjects that we teach uh, and are responsible for in primary. So absolutely, I think there's, you know, we need both of these, um, some that's more general and applicable to everybody. Um, you know, before we go down into the nitty gritty, do you know about cognitive load theory? Do you know about novices and experts? Are you aware of how to teach children to read? These are things that can be applied at scale in order then for you to go deeper into that subject knowledge and go further uh, with what you need to do. I like that analogy you gave of, of kind of the, this is the knowledge we all need to have narrowed down to the subject specific knowledge and meeting this. Because I imagine even in, in primary, you can do please forgive me if, if i've got this incorrect if you wanted to kind of bone up on your history you could go to a, a history specific cbt you want to bone up on your maths you could go to a math specific cpd so you can still kind of have that subject specific nature but i suppose from your unique perspective of being masters of all the trades you can then take ideas from that math center i'm going to yeah. apply that to yeah. My, my geography topic when we're going to talk about volcanoes and, and so on. So I find that quite interesting. Yeah, while, while I would argue, um, you know, that there are obviously generic things and, you know, what I said about knowing about, you know, cognitive um, load theory and, um, you know, there, there are gene generic pedagogical things, but when you get down to using them, that then becomes much more topic specific. So, you know, I would still be saying that primary teachers need to do subject specific um, professional learning to use these general things to, to teach maths better, you know, or to teach their geography, uh, you know, so there's always going to be a blend of the two. Um, but um, I, I would, you know, strongly argue that, you know, primary teachers need good quality subject specific professional learning just as much as, as secondary teachers. Um, you know, it is a slightly different context. Um, you know, they are primary teachers by their nature are much more generalist. Um, so, you know, I, I don't envy them the, the, the task 
you know, of having to be, you know, jack of all trades or however you describe it. But nevertheless, you know, when you get down to, you know, teaching a, a seven-year-old how to do, um, you know, basic number bonds or, you know, whatever it is, um, you need to have subject specialist knowledge of teaching that bit of the curriculum. Mm -hmm. I, absolutely. I to totally take that on board and I actually agree with what you're saying. I suppose thinking about the training that I do, for example, I incorporate um, cognitive load theory into my writing training. It's just a bit disconcerting when it's the first time teachers are hearing about it. <laughs> you know, so from my perspective, I'm like, should, should I really be the first person telling you about this stuff in this which is really about writing, and I'm only mentioning it in passing, you know, I'm not doing cognitive load theory any justice, because I'm teaching the whole of how to teach writing in the primary school, you know, I don't have time to do, you know, drill down on what cognitive load theory actually is, and do it proper, you know, justice, so, so yeah, I absolutely, we'll take that on board, but it's really, you know, necessary to embed that within the subject and, and how that would look you know in reality when you're teaching the subject itself. I find that research inf informed or practice but whatever people want to call it I find that really fascinating especially in my role is I, I kind of go kind of conflict myself with trying to make it practical in nature the work that I do for each subject but also have this overarching themes and you know, my, my, my learning principles that I put out a couple of weeks ago that I've kind of magpied from all manner of great places. But what I find find very interesting and dare I speak of it is this the early career framework down in England. And when you hear people talk about who were involved in developing it, they talk about a, a profession that has a shared body of knowledge. And what I find fascinating for teaching is that there's no one, excuse me, there's no one textbook, article, blog post, journal that we can see that all teachers have read, but you could probably do that in most other professions. You know, there'll be the Cambridge Law Journal, for example, the, probably every solicitor and lawyer in the country has read that. There'll be a, you know, for for um, those involved in medicine, there'll be a, a I think my good lady works in dentistry, and she's got the big British thing of, of all the medicines, you know, so they've all, they've all read that, they've all got that. But teaching seems to be more ideological, more um, kind of, because we all went to school, we all know what good teaching looks like and, and it's not kind of as rigorous enough. Whereas what I like in, about the early career framework is they're trying to bring that body of knowledge and say, this is what we want our teachers to know about and this is how we want them to know it and how it will then improve their teaching. And I know there's there's critics of it and how it's rolled out and, and it's become a workload issue as well and it's rolled out. But I quite like what the, what the people are saying about it, about trying to bring together this body of knowledge you want teachers to have on their early career. And it brings us on quite smoothly, actually, to our, our next question. Uh, let's talk a little bit about initial teacher education and how it, and how it prepares teachers. So can I ask first, does our initial teacher education program prepare teachers well enough? And is the trans transition from initial teacher education to the classroom rigorous enough? Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> I think is the answer. 
uh, to this one, although I really should preface it by saying, you know, I do understand time is absolutely limited and everybody wants their thing to be included in initial teacher education. So you I get that and I know everything can't be included, particularly if you're doing, you know, a postgrad, there's a year there, that's not long. However, so that it comes then to being a case of priorities. What do we prioritise that's important for teachers to know? Just like what you were saying there, Dan, about the early teacher framework. I mean, wouldn't it be great if cognitive load theory was covered, um, you know, that reading was covered, that teachers were actually taught how to teach reading? Then, you know, a lot of the, the big stuff, the nuts and bolts are covered. We could then get down into the nitty gritty subject specific stuff uh, when we do move into school. So all the, the big ticket items have been covered. Um, Whereas I feel I'm trying to unpick the actual what teachers have been taught. I'm trying to unpick that. I've, I've had it more than once uh, being communicated to me that what I'm telling people to do is exactly completely opposite of what they've been told in their teacher training. So I'm kind of working against that. So uh, does it prepare teachers? Does it prepare primary teachers? Absolutely not. It doesn't because... Teachers are coming out and they're not being taught how to teach reading. And that's not just me uh, saying it anecdotally. We have two of our own um, sort of Scottish government funded reviews. Um, the review of the Scottish Government Literacy Hub approach in 2014. And more recently in 2017, the gathering views on probationer teachers readiness to teach. So this is not new stuff. I can have 100 teachers in an assembly hall. Well, I did pre-COVID. And, you know, if I ask the question, where are you taught how to teach reading? Shockingly, I might get five, six hands up at the very most. You know, the bread and butter of what we do every day. Uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the main job of primary schools is to teach children to read. If we don't do that, doesn't matter what else you've done or what else you haven't done. If you've not done that, then we have, we have failed. We've had seven years with those children so for me that's a priority that cannot be ignored but it absolutely is being ignored um you know and no matter how much I try and raise attention about the issue starting a petition giving evidence to the Scottish Parliament that'll be four years uh, next month since I gave evidence and we're, really, we're, we're no further forward mm -hmm. in that respect so it's, I hate to bash people and say things, but sorry, it's a, it's a resounding no. ITE is not working. Um, it's a very difficult one because, as Anne's already said, you know, particularly a one-year PGDE is so little time. Um, I think there's quite a lot of variability between different universities. Mm -hmm. And, and not just the universities, the actual courses and subjects within the universities. Uh, I think, you know, there, there's probably more variability, um, you know, within that than there is between universities. Um, I suspect um, that's just my my anecdotal um, feeling. Um, so I think there are some really well-prepared um, people coming into the profession, others that are less well-prepared, but I don't think anybody really claims that ITE turns out fully-fledged teachers. Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, there's often, I think, a, a misunderstanding in the profession, uh, you know, about the process. Um, you know, we, we've, that's why we've got the probationary year for a start, um, you know, so that you can only be fully registered after a year. Um, 
recently I've been you know speaking to a number of people and things that have been coming up about the, the need for you know teachers to learn their craft to deepen their subject knowledge um, you know once they're in the profession um, and um, even people talking about teachers developing into the standard, you know, the, the standard for full registration, um, which they should have, you know, um, achieved at the end of the probationary year. Um, I think there's issues around about the standard for career-long professional learning and, and, and how we expect teachers to actually develop, um, you know, and, and, and part of that, you know, comes down to, as I said, that, that I think that a one-year PGD is just not long enough. Um, and I think since Donaldson with the changes to the primary degrees as well, so that it's more, more like, you know, doing an, a university subject um, plus education um, compared to the, the old B.Ed. means that the time to actually focus on what you need to be able to teach, you know, a kid at a particular age, you know, about things has perhaps been diminished uh, a bit as well. Um, so I, I think that there is... Um, definitely a need for us to develop a better transition from initial teacher education into becoming a teacher. Now, you know, Darren, you mentioned the early career framework that they've introduced down south, which is, you know, kind of acknowledging that same sort of problem. But I think, you know, it might even be that we need a longer induction period, even up to like the, the first PU professional update, you know, review after five years where there's um, a more progressive transition from university education um, through into you know, schools and support um, to try and, and make that transition um, better and get people you know, basically to a higher level uh, you know, and a higher uh, expectation. Um, and um, I, I think then you know, possibly ready to then look at master's level uh, learning and things after after that um, I think from as well you know I see it from a science point of view but I think it's even worse than certain other subjects like technology for example um, you know a, a teacher coming into a secondary subject um, isn't going to have covered all the stuff that they need to teach as part of the degree so I think there is an assumption often that you know you do your degree you get you, you've got all the subject knowledge that you need and then you do your PGD and you learn how to teach it. And, you know, it's not nearly as clean cut as that, you know, um, like taking technology, you know, technical education, an example, you know, um, people can come in from a, sort of a wide range of degree backgrounds, engineering, graphics, you know, and they're teaching engineering science, um, you know, sort of uh, design and manufacture, graphic communication, woodwork, metal work, practical electronics, you know, there's no way that a degree and uh, a one-year PGE could prepare a teacher for that, um, you know, and I think that that applies across other sort of mm -hmm. subject and discipline areas as well. Um, you know, I think sort of technology might be a, one of the more extreme ones. Um, and I think, you know, the, you know, within my own subject area and looking at, at primary teachers, um, we've had of going back 30 years now, the research that Wynne Harlan and Colin Holroyd did about um, primary teachers' knowledge and um, confidence in teaching science, and particularly the physical sciences and like engineering and things as well. Uh, and it, you know, Education Scotland's 
CLPL surveys that they've done recently would show that, you know, that, that there hasn't been a, a significant change from the, the sort of um, situation that when Harlan was, was writing about, you know, 30 years ago. And, and although there's really good organisations like CERC that provide a lot of primary support and there's been the RAISE programme um, looking at supporting professional learning in the sciences, um, the capacity in the system to actually roll that out, uh, you know, across everybody with all the time pressures. And as, as Anne said earlier, you know, in, you know, the primary curriculum, I think everybody's wanting their own little bit. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think as a result, there just really isn't enough time in all of that process through ITE, through probation, and then, um, you know, for professional learning to kind of fill the various gaps and provide the support that's that's really needed to to give everybody the, the sort of start that I would like to see them you know get you know it's it's I don't think I'm asking you know too much it's just doing it properly. No, I certainly agree with that um, idea of of a, a longer phased induction into the profession. I'm always amazed when I, I read about the Japanese model of being a kind of inductee teacher if you like for many years and then you could eventually become a master teacher and then the master teacher gets to kind of showcase their teaching talent that they've developed over this 10-year period to showcase all these individual teaching techniques I find that incredibly fascinating and I like to mention the other thing about that two-year commitment and and so on um Although there are it's quite a good uh, point to note that there are people who have started that process and find it too overwhelming. So it's about finding that balance um, to get it. Well, I mean, I always talk about my early career because I was incredibly fortunate. And, always, and it makes me think back to the craft and papier research of 2014, where you mm. had the different graphs of which school yeah. you're in and how you plateau after five years. I mean, I was in a place where I could accelerate really quickly because the the professionals around me were just truly outstanding and I know that not everyone can land in a place like that and that's another conversation for perhaps another yeah. day you know I think yeah that, well I, I think you know I'm, I'm, I was very much the same like I'll, I'll uh, you know sort of put it on record as it were you know I started off and did my probation um, two years at that time because I'm that old um, uh, at Kinross High School and like um uh, again, it was just that environment, you know, where I had supportive people that I could turn to. You know, Ian Simpson was my PT, but Dave Little was the PT chemistry. We had a really good technician, and at the end of the day, um, you know, we would just sit around in the in the base and have a cup of tea. And the technician would always have the kettle on, you know, five minutes before the bell, and um, we, we would just sort of decompress at the end of the day. But my um, opportunity then just to actually sit and speak with these two, you know, knowledgeable, experienced teachers and the technician about, you know, the job, you know, what I was doing that day, what I needed to get set up and organised for the next day, you know, was just really fantastic. You know, I was really lucky, really good support. And, you know, sort of, uh, Ian was just that sort of guy that was able to, um, you know, give me enough rope not to hang myself, but, you know, give me the support and things they needed to fly. And I'm really pleased to, to know that... Um, they, they, like they've demolished the old Kinross High School 
um, now in the middle of Kinross and built houses on it. And one of the streets is named after them. So I think that's just reward. Uh, you know, I can certainly thank him for the sort of start that he uh, gave me in my career. But, you know, I was lucky. Uh, I think I could have ended up, you know, and I spoke to people that I did my PGCE with that weren't lucky. And, um, you know, I'm not going to go into that in any, any more detail, but, you know, I was lucky. And certainly, and it's this, what I'm liking to see as well is this focus, a little bit of a focus more on mentors and how important experienced classroom teachers are for probationary teachers and student teachers to really help them and, and give them that kind of space to, to lean on them, to ask the questions, you know, no questions, a silly question and really share their expertise that they've they've gained and, and I think we need to to be a, to treasure our experienced teachers a little bit more um, dare I say to, to so that we can lean on them and, and really encourage them to become mentors as they as they kind of after they've had a, a, a after they, so they can share their experience and, and really help support younger teachers to to come through um, so I'd like to move the conversation on a little bit. I think we're kind of a little bit of agreement there on, on initial teacher education. And our final question, we'll kind of talk about the structures that perhaps we could have in the future to really support really good preparation of teachers. So we've mentioned subject specific a lot, a lot in, in both primary and secondary. So that can I ask then, is there enough of a focus on, on subject knowledge for teachers at the start of their career and then as they progress all the way through their career? Um, yes and no, it's a hard question. Um, you know, it, it can often come down to the quality of the professional learning that's on offer. Um, certainly in primary, most of what we do would be termed subject specific, but we do seem to be on a kind of hamster wheel of, you know, reading or literacy will be on the development plan, then it'll be writing, then it'll be listening, talking, and then next year it will change and it'll go to maths and then we'll do maths for a few years and then it goes back to literacy again. <laughs> so yeah, things like science, they, 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 don't, they don't make an appearance because we're still not getting literacy quite right. We're still not getting maths quite right or we're changing again what we've already been doing. Um, so we never get to the next part, the next step in that journey. Um, and just when you were speaking about that, Stuart, about, you know, the specific subject, specific for primary teachers, for science, that that is so needed. And, and for all of the subjects, um, you know, I know there are a particular um, teacher education degrees now that are trying to include more specialisms within their particular B.Ed. and so on. So these are important, you know, coming forward. But if we're thinking about a five-year programme, perhaps there needs to be almost checkboxes of, yes, I have done some um, proper compulsory high-quality professional learning that will equip me to teach science or PE or whatever it is in, in the primary classroom. So is there enough of a focus? Uh, yeah, but it's the same subjects that get that focus all the time and it's not always the right content or the right messages that are being delivered, I would say, in my opinion. Well, I don't think it's going to surprise anybody. I've known what I've said so far, or those people that know me say that I don't think there is sufficient focus on, on subject knowledge and 
the subject specific element. Um, I think in Scottish education, um, in, in recent years, we've had a, a focus on learnification, as Gert Biesta, um calls it. Um, and I think that that's been having a long, has a, you know, having an effect for quite a long time. And, and it predates CFE, uh, although I think CFE basically allowed it to develop as the, this orthodoxy uh, in many ways uh, and, you know, promoted a false dichotomy between uh, skills uh, or skills over knowledge. And I think that, um, um, you know, that's downgraded the importance of knowledge um, within the curriculum. And that obviously has effect on to um, professional learning and, and elsewhere. That's obviously something that's been picked up by the OECD review of, of CFE, you know, where, you know, pretty much the first thing they say uh, is about, you know, reviewing the, the, the narrative of CFE with a particular focus on the role of knowledge. Um, you know, I think CFE, you know, looking at the E's and O's, um, the, certainly within the sciences, again, you know, can't speak particularly well about other, other areas, but they, they don't promote the development of a coherent um, conceptual knowledge and understanding base. Uh, and, and, you know, going back to, you know, early on in my career, and if, you know, I've got a, a reasonably good archive of curriculum documents. And going back to, you know, something that was called Curriculum Paper 7, which was published in 1969 and described the uh, sort of science in the early secondary years, the, 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 the sort of quality of the writing of that document and the, 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 the sort of rigour within that um, is like chalk and cheese with many of the more modern documents mm -hmm. now you know that i'm not saying that it was perfect that you know it was very much all its time wasn't really catering for science for all and various things you know so i'm not saying you know dump cfe and go back to curriculum paper seven please you know i'm not advocating that at all but what i am advocating is that we actually think about the curriculum and the development of knowledge in a properly rigorous well thought through way the sort of thing that you described about as well with the situation in Japan where teachers think about their teaching and the, the knowledge base and build it up over years and, and develop it and hone it. Um, we, we need to try and introduce that. And, and in many ways, I think in Scotland that we've we've lost that because I, again, you know, going back early in my career, I can think of the, um, the, the, the Scottish Curriculum Development Service, which was um, uh, existed back in the, the late, mid to late 80s when I came into teaching that developed a whole lot of support documents and guides for teaching higher physics and you know other subjects that were you know much more rigorous than the sorts of things that we've got at the moment um, and I would like to see a return to that sort of level of, of middle level support um, and you know thinking about again you know thinking about physics as an example you know, in, in recent years, we've um, had a really good way for teachers to share um, share knowledge within the profession. Um, we, nearly 20 years ago, the IOP set up the Sputnik email list, for example, simple forum to allow teachers to share um, information, ask questions. And on the back of that, thanks to, you know, several really sort of committed teachers that sort of gave up their time and effort for little direct return, people like Dave Spittle and Nick Hood, for example, developed ways of sharing files. So that was all in place when CFE came in. 
and and that was uh, allowed teachers to share new resources really easily and that that was really a, a godsend for most teachers it's basically how they coped with the introduction of CFE and physics um, but all of these resources were kind of teachers scrabbling around um, at the last minute because you know SQA documents and whatever were published at the last minute to try and get something to stick in front of the kids and um, the quality was a, a, a inevitably variable um, and there wasn't that sort of collective thinking about how to then improve that and make it better um, and you know I, I was part of that I contributed quite a bit you know so I know how they were sort of, we were scrambling around to just get something organized um, you know I'm just describing my own experience um, so, so we need to be able to do something better than that rather than um, teachers cobbling together resources and not having real time to develop you know and vet them and proofread them and hone them in the way that you're describing and I think if we if we did that with a good you know build up you know coherent progressive build up of the knowledge through the curriculum we could then you know it would make it a lot easier from a professional learning point of view um, you know for the the people involved in that process to explain their thinking to develop that deeper discussion within the profession about mm -hmm. the why and you know the the decisions that were made um, and um, you know I think that 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 would be something that um, would be really advantageous and as you've said Darren that's that's basically what happens in a lot of high performing countries mm -hmm. you know that they've got this sort of longer term view um, you know maybe if the with the OECD review if we do go to an eight year or 10 year um, curriculum cycle, you know, don't know what Ken Muir is going to recommend, but you know, if, if we, we go to some sort of cycle like that, I hope that we can take the advantage of then building into that the time to really think deeply about the development of the actual curriculum and the knowledge mm -hmm. and what professional learning support teachers they need on the, to you know, really understand that and develop that and uh, make sure that the, the outcomes that kids uh, are able to achieve are, are, are much better. Certainly, I think that's a very important point that, you know, the OECD mentioned the role of knowledge and, and this knowledge building in our curriculum and our curriculum's probably kind of, we've lost that a little bit with the, you see, the learnification. <laughs> I quite like that one. I'm going to look that, that one up um, of teaching. And a lot, of, a lot of times, you know, it is scobbled, like kind of scrabbled together resources joined up to make a lesson rather than real meaningful learning broken down into a sequence with meaningful rich material. I think maybe my it talks a lot about really high quality meaningful material for children to read and work with and so on that's been vetted, which is an interesting mm -hmm. idea. Um, and do you have anything to contribute on the idea of subject knowledge before I move it on? Uh, just pick up on a couple of things you were saying. Firstly, I love that word. You just, just, just you just almost got it out. You made up the word scobbled, which was a mixture of <laughs> cobble and scrabble, which absolutely describes what primary teachers do pretty much every Sunday uh, and most weeknights is they're scobbling together a curriculum. 
because after the great sort of textbook cleansing of 2010, when skips were seen in primary school playgrounds, we got rid of all of our materials. We got rid of all of our textbooks. What were we thinking? And it's been replaced with, you know, uh, Twinkle, for example. You know, Twinkle can be good for some things, but it should not be your curriculum. Mm -hmm. You know, how did we think that this is going to be better teachers doing it on their own for 10 subjects rather than using a resource written by an expert with a proper progression. You know, Stuart uh, used lots of my favourite words, including rigour. Um, you know, something we were so good at in Scotland was rigour, particularly in the basic skills. We need to bring that back again. So I love the idea of having a kind of middle layer, people producing resources. And I love the sound of the olden days where all of this stuff actually existed and it was of a high quality. Um, you know, we, we have no documents, no support, no guidance on the teaching of reading in Scotland. There's absolutely nothing if you're a teacher or a school or a head teacher looking for help or advice, there is nothing. Contrast that with England, Rose Review 2006, Reading by Six 2010, Ready to Read 2014, Bold Beginnings 2017, the Offset Inspection Handbook, just been updated, 2021, and a brand new early reading framework came out in July of this year. You know, they're <laughs> producing the goods constantly, consistently updating, moving with the research. We, you know, we're a desert. Mm -hmm. And that's that's crazy to, to think that, you know, I've, I've read articles on how schools, international schools, English schools used to use Scottish O grades because the GCSEs weren't good enough or whatever they had in the place. And now, you know, it's it's fascinating watching Wales and reading the discussions around Wales because I was kind of been kind of forced myself into a couple of threads around reading in Wales with, uh, I, I think it's Rob Randall he's called. Rob, yeah, Rob Randall. I find that quite, quite interesting. You know, Wales have kind of followed suit with the Scottish model and I'm kind of hoping they just do it with a, a lot more rigour and <laughs> a lot more uh, support for for teachers because I think that was, it's, it's interesting because I began my career, my first, my probation year, I taught standard grade, but throughout that year, I, with my principal teacher at the time was developing a National 5 course so that they had, the school, I didn't end up moving on after my MPT year into a different school. But I had a National 5 course fully resourced and written um, to take with me. And I still use most of that now <laughs> um, because it was such a, because we we devoted a lot of time and hours into into doing that. So kind of conscious of time and, and I've, I've taken, we've taken up a lot of uh, our evening. So we're going to move on to our last question, kind of our, our blue sky thinking time to wrap up our, our discussion before we have a little quick fire section, because I can't have a Become an Educated podcast without a quick fire section. Um, so question, the last question I'm going to pose to you both is, how does the system need to change to accommodate our, our dream of, of this meaningful professional learning? Oh, well. um, oh, you, you go on. Yeah. Okay, um, I was just going to say this won't be popular, um, but... I can't see any other way than changing the curriculum. <laughs> I really can't because over the years I've, through my reading, I've come to understand that curriculum for excellence 
is a constructivist pedagogy when you lift the bonnet. And all of this active learning, discovery learning, teacher as facilitator, um, that has really de-skilled the profession and we focus more on engagement rather than learning. Um, and I don't feel that tweaks will be sufficient to move it on. We need to give knowledge its rightful place. We need to give teaching its rightful place. And I don't think we can do that with the curriculum that we currently have. Um, I think the, in order to change the pedagogy, <laughs> the curriculum was gonna have to change first because that's dictating the kind of constructivist principles that are infusing the whole of primary. Um, and we're really doubling down on that now with sort of play-based learning being pushed in so many authorities. Well, I would second what Anne's said there. Um, um, you know, I, I referred to the learnification, um, you know, earlier on, and I think, you know, what Anne's described there is, is entirely consistent with that. Um, in terms of the, the, the system needing to change, I, I do agree. I think that the, the curriculum needs um, a significant overhaul to really look at the, the role of knowledge. And I do genuinely hope that, you know, what comes out of the OECD review uh, that we don't get lost in um, the, the restructuring of Education Scotland and SQA being the, the end point of the process. Um, I think we, we, we need fit for purpose organisations, but fit for purpose to do the changes to the curriculum and everything else that we need to actually really change things. Uh, I think um, like one of the things um, I would say about um, the expertise and the support in the system you know, I think the, 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 the teaching profession in Scotland has been getting younger um, over the last few years. So I think we are losing expertise out of the system. Uh, and I, I would kind of ask a question as much that um, about, you know, if you go into most schools, you'll find, you know, the, 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 the grumpy old cynic sitting in the corner of the classroom, of the staff room. Um, um, and I would ask, you know, why are the way that they are, you know, um, because, you know, I've come across a number of people like that through my career. Um, and um, when you actually get to know them and have a chat with them, you, you, you find that they're, you know, they've been the, the, the bright young things, you know, earlier on in their career. And somehow the system, you know, has knocked that out of them and they've become the, the grumpy old cynics in the corner. But nevertheless, you know, they've got an awful lot of expertise about, you know, what's happened over the years, what's worked and so on. And I think we need to make better use of that and, and stop basically the, you know, the system turning the, the bright young things into the, the grumpy old cynics. I think going forward that the, the use of the additional 1.5 hours per week that has been, you know, of non-contact time that has been promised really needs to be used wisely. Um, and again, you wouldn't be surprised to, to say that I think that a, a strong part of that needs to be subject specific, you know, good quality subject specific professional learning. Um, I actually think that the, the 1.5 hours per day that was promised in the, due to the typo in the, the SNP's original election manifesto uh, for the elections that have just gone past is actually what we need, you know, and, and that's when they're going to bring us in line with the likes of Estonia and Japan and Finland you know, um, other 
you know, high-performing countries. So I think we, we need to make good use of that time and trust teachers to make use of that time. Uh, unfortunately, I think there's too many people in the system that want to keep teachers busy, you know, and get fill up any free time, um, getting them to, to be busy. It's a bit like Dan was maybe saying about some of the, the constructivist pedagogies for, you know, kids are busy, but not actually doing meaningful things. Um, I think the same applies to the way that um, teachers are often treated. So, you know, so there's a really important that we have good quality professional learning time and trust in teachers um, to actually use that time properly. And, and I do think that a significant portion of that has to be on good quality subject specific professional learning, really looking at the, the, the pedagogical content knowledge, you know, so again, just to re-emphasize the point is subject specific professional learning isn't learning about more about a subject. It's about how to teach that subject better. Um, um, you know, teaching the and looking at the, the more general um, pedagogical knowledge, but in the context of, of how you teach that in your subject and you're like, like my pedagogy diagnostic questions, uh, you know, examples, that, that sort of thing. Um, and, and we just need, need good middle level or meso level support to, to do that, you know, again, uh, just um, um, agree with what Anne was saying about needing good documents and, you know, good knowledgeable people that are well engaged with the sort of current research evidence to, to support teachers to do that, you know, not to tell them what to do, but to help facilitate and support mm -hmm. teachers to use that time um, to, to um, uh, make sure that the, you know, the focus is on improving the outcomes for, for the kids and um, having, you know, good access to knowledgeable others, you know, and that includes the, the teacher down the corridor, but also, um, you know, could be local authority staff or RIC staff. Um, it'd be interesting to see how the new lead teacher posts go. I hope that they don't just end up being more accountability staff. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's people like the, the IOP Scotland physics coaches that, you know, I worked with and, and was basically one before I took up my, my current role. You know, we're basically all, you know, usually experienced full-time teachers, um, but with a little bit of support from the Institute, um, they help and support teachers with whatever they need to, you know, teach physics better. Um, and I think it's a really cost-effective way of doing it because, you know, it just provides a little bit of lubrication to basically take the really knowledgeable, you know, expert, you know, lead teachers, however you want to describe them, um, and share that um, knowledge with the wider profession and build a community. And, um, you know, I really like to see that sort of activities, um, you know, just supported and allowed to flourish because I, I think, you know, teachers are looking for the support they, they, they want things that are relevant to their context and their situation. So we just need, to, as a system, to um, um, you know facilitate that better uh, and prioritise that better. Certainly, I think it's it's important that we really fight to protect that one and a half hours so that we can think deeply about our, our practice. Um, I think I agree with Anne that our, our curriculum needs to change. It isn't working. 
I think um, the actions of, of, for example, stepping away from the Tim study, our lack of meaningful, rich data on reading, writing, spelling, speaking, it, it's showing, it's, it's, it's papering over the cracks that are appearing in our system. And if we ha if we can reframe that to, as I spoke with Bruce Robertson just la in the podcast just the other week there, if we can have a knowledge-based, skills-orientated, experiences-infused, rich curricula that is then supported by, I think you call it the measles level, you know, the, you know, why can't we find the best five history teachers in Scotland to write the best history textbook for the time? And then that's distributed to everyone. Use that. It's the best. The best. Yeah, but I think also also with time, well then other teachers to, mm -hmm. to be able to understand why it's the best history text and discuss, you know, why, you know, uh, so so it's not just, you know, the, the five best teachers write in a textbook and say, here it is, you know, go away and. Exactly. Know. But it's that time. It's like a, a really interesting, I, I listened to a podcast with Mark McCourt. And he was talking about speaking with the head, head of department of maths who was moving from mixed ability to setting. And Mark McCourt posed the question of, of how many years of professional learning are you giving to your staff before you do that move? And the, guy, the head of the department's offer was, well, we're moving next year. And Mark McCourt was, well, you need to prepare because your pedagogy needs to completely change to prepare for that. So it's about using that time for pedagogy because it moves on to my next thing that I'd like to see more. I'd like to see more in the systems in schools. You know, I've spoken to some wonderful people on the podcast from various schools who do various things and magpie them. The subject pedagogy development sessions of Durrington High School, where the department teams meet all the time and they plan what they're going a part of their courses, the script ex explanations, they kind of work through problems to see it from the student's point of view. They they redesign their resources to best fit. So they're talking about the actual practice. Less need for data and tracking. More actual conversations. Um, less time taken up with administration and more time taken up with actual chatting. Getting to chat to the experienced teacher down the corridor. You know, there's a great quote that says some of the best, the greatest PD it's two doors down the two doors down the corridor, but the problem is, yeah, how you do, don't have time to go. How do we, how uh, do we enable that? And I think that's something we need to think really deeply about our school structures and, and how we enable that and how we become less busy doing stuff and more busy thinking and debating and reflecting and honing the practice of teaching, because I think we all know and can all agree now that the quality of teaching is the biggest indicator of student success. So the more we talk about teaching, the act of teaching or the craft of teaching, and more we prioritize that through subject knowledge, a meaningful curriculum, the best research practices, the best pedagogies, and we get that straight into the teacher's hands, then everyone flourishes. And I think that's, something that we really need to do. Sounds brilliant. When do we start? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. So that um, brings us to the end of our discussion. Um, I'm going to close it there. So thank you so much, Anne and Stuart, for joining me on, on the podcast to, to discuss professional learning in, in Scotland. And hopefully it comes at the right time 
um, to stimulate further debate. I hope we've said some things of, of value um, and we can contribute well to the discussion that's taken place with Ken Muir's review and obviously in, off the back of the OECD report into Curriculum for Excellence. So I'd like to close with a little quick fire quiz. I've got three questions. Two of them work back to back. So Stuart, I'm going to start with you. Um, can I ask you the first one? And it is, uh, what has been your best professional learning experience to date? Well, I think you probably know me by well enough now, Darren, that um, asking me that question, I'm going to come back with three answers. Um, and that's, <laughs> that's really because, um, you know, I think the professional learning and what's the best professional learning is different for people at different times in their career. So, so my first thing was, um, it was early on when I was a, 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 a young principal teacher of physics. Um, I was invited on to the then Scottish Examination Board um, physics assessment, um, physics subject panel, and I was involved in the writing and the vetting of exam papers. Um, and, um, you know, spending weekends cooped up in a hotel with about six other experienced physics teachers uh, talking about the meaning of questions, the wording of questions, the underlying physics, the different approaches that kids can answer them was absolutely fantastic. And it's really made me think very deeply about, you know, teaching the physics, that my understanding and, and also my ability to write better teaching resources. Um, now, obviously a limited number of people um, can benefit from that and the, this, well, certainly in the strange world of the, the, the SEB back in these days. So that's something that I think, you know, needs to be more widely done. Uh, the second thing was um, going to the, the week-long summer school in Canada called Einstein Plus that's organised by the Perimeter Institute um, in Canada. Uh, and, you know, basically spending a, a week with leading physics educators from around the world um, you know, it's just tremendous, you know, again, thinking deeply about teaching um, the subject. I attended that in 2014. There's numerous things that have come out of that as a result. You know, I've had two book chapters published this last summer. They wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for that event. Um, and then the third thing um, that I want to mention, which is slightly different, you know, further away from the, the classroom, as it were, um, was I did the, the MSc in Science Teacher of Education at the University of Oxford, um, actually with, you know, some support, um, you know, it came around, it wasn't something that I was planning to do, it came around with some support from the Institute of Physics, and that gave me a really uh, structured, deep exploration of science teacher knowledge, um, teacher education knowledge, uh, and the opportunities to research, you know, topics of interest. Um, it obviously had a strong subject element as well. Um, but the thing that I really liked about it, and this was maybe something that, you know, people wouldn't necessarily associate with the University of Oxford as a place, it was extremely practical. It was really rooted in um, what was actually relevant to the context of, you know, teacher education and, you know, teaching in the classroom. Um, yes, you could disappear down theoretical and research rabbit holes, you know, sort of quite easily. But um, it was really a, an excellent experience and, and something that was really, you know, focused and relevant to me as somebody supporting other teachers. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's my, my, 
my third thing, but you know, I wanted to, to refer to these three things because at different stages in my career, you know, they were really uh, good opportunities that really helped me develop and reflect on you know, my own development and my practices. Certainly, so you've probably answered, I'm going to stick with you for that second question then and ask you, what difference did one of those make to you in the classroom or for your career? Well, really, the first two, you know, both um, supported my development of, you know, pedagogical content knowledge and my ability to explain topics better, uh, to check up on people's understanding better, you know, and, and generally, you know, provide a more coherent and effective narrative to the kids about, you know, what it was that I was actually teaching. Um, you know, and the last one essentially, you know, allowed me to do the same with, um, you know, supporting teachers. Brilliant. Thanks so much. So I'm going to come to you for those same two questions and I'm going to go back to each of you to shoot for the last one. So I can ask you, what has been your best professional learning experience to date? Um, hard to pick one, but I did. And it's reading Dan McGuinness, um, Early Reading Instruction, What Science Really Tells Us About How to Teach Reading and Why Children Can't Read and What We Can Do About It. Um, and what difference did that make for me in the classroom or for my career? Well, honestly, reading that's been a catalyst, a pivotal moment for me in terms of my professional learning. It, it changed everything. The scales fell from my eyes. It was the missing pieces of the jigsaw for me, and it's kind of become my defining mission <laughs> to try and tell as many other teachers about that research as possible. Certainly, and we spoke about that in a, in a previous episode of, of Becoming Educated, and you, of course, spoke about that at Scott Ed, so I've, I'll link to that in the, in the show notes for you know, a link back to the episode we had as well, Stuart, on I think it was professional learning then again we spoke about pedagogical content knowledge and, and the like so a, a good strong themes appearing here so thank you so much and the final question to you, to you both then start, starting with Stuart uh, what one thing would you like to see more of as part of our professional learning right well I'm going to do it again and I'm going to say two things it's time <laughs> and it's trust um, it's what we've I've already discussed before you know teachers need time to actually work together focused on improving teaching, improving pupil outcomes. And basically the, the, the system needs to be able to trust them to, to get on and do that effectively um, and provide the actual support and facilitation to allow them to get on and do that. You know, just uh, what, what teachers want to do, they want to teach kids and, you know, see the kids being successful. You know, we, that's what we need to focus on. 100% sure. Thanks so much. Uh, and Anne, what one thing would you like to see more of as are part of our professional learning. I would like um, all teachers, whether primary or secondary, to have input on how to teach and support reading and spelling in the classroom. Brilliant. Thank you so, so much for joining me this evening for contributing to such a rich discussion through varying themes on professional learning. Um, thanks to Stuart for coming up with the idea to, to do this, something different for the Becoming Educated podcast. I hope that it's timely, that it's useful, and that it can really kickstart a, a really meaningful conversation in Scotland around about our professional learning curriculum and reading. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Educated. As ever, I would be delighted to hear your thoughts 
and you can contact me via Twitter at DNLeslie or via email. So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from so that many, many others can access Becoming Educated. I'll be back next week with another episode of Becoming Educated and I do hope to see you there.